0: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half assed History this week on the agenda. Oh, my goodness me. geez we've got a good one. The Spanish Armada, suggested, suggested by an alert listener, Tyler Berg, back in uh, January. Whoops. Uh, so I did get to it eventually. So thanks so much, Tyler, for the suggestion. If you've got a suggestion for an episode, please get in touch, at gmail.com. And as you've probably already noticed by the length of this episode, I kind of went off the rails a little bit because this was fascinating to read about and there was so much stuff that i ended up just thinking i no, 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 can't can't leave this bit out so so let's strap yourselves in i hope you're comfortable ladies and gentlemen because we're going to be here for a quite a little while so let's get to it and have a chat about the spanish armada which again you've probably already heard of at some point despite being a very very famous and well-known thing from history not many people actually know what it actually involved or did or was trying to do or the general sort of thing that we, we that went around it you know we just we know that the spaniards at some point built an armada what were they trying to do with it well I'm glad you asked because you're about to find out. Today we're going to get to, you know, right this wrong. We're going to to uncover exactly what happened with, uh, with this big fleet of ships and get stuck in to the biggest story to emerge from the Anglo-Spanish War, which was the Spanish Armada. Well, actually, specifically the first Anglo-Spanish War that kicked off in, in 1585 because there have been a lot of Anglo-Spanish Wars over the years as it happens. One of them was part of the Seven Years' War and another was part of the Napoleonic Wars. But my absolute favourite... Anglo-Spanish War, seeing as you asked, was the one that kicked off in 1739 when a bloke named Robert Jenkins had his ear chopped off by a Spanish Coast Guard in 1731. Eight years later, the English and the Spaniards are blowing at it, hell for leather, and tens of thousands of people are dying. So just bear that in mind. Next time you're about to chop some bloke's ear off, in eight years' time, you may be provoking you know, an, an international conflict that, that claims the lives, lives of thousands. So a lesson that we can all learn uh, today here on Half-Arts History. Anyway... We haven't even started this episode yet, we're already a million miles off the rail, so let's get to it and talk about what was going on with the Spanish Armada and its attempted invasion of England in the 16th century. We've got to go back a bloody long way here, and we've got to take the scenic route to set the stage here uh, for the story of the Spanish Armada, so bear with me because there's a lot of stage setting to be done. Despite the Spanish Armada setting sail in 1588, we've got to head back about 50 years earlier to old mate Henry VIII. He's probably worth his own episode one day. It'll be another bloody long one, I think, with him. But the long and the short of his role in this story is that he gets the English Reformation going because those bloody Catholics won't let him divorce Catherine of Aragon. Now, as a result of this, Protestantism gains a firm foothold in England, and you've got blokes left, right and centre converting to Anglicanism, the particular flavour of Protestantism that is is gripping uh, the British Isles. Obviously, there's Calvinism and and all sorts of other ones on the continent, and, you know, northern Germany, uh, we've got Denmark, and parts of what are today the Netherlands and Belgium are all well and truly in the grip of Protestantism, whereas uh, Italy, France, Spain, countries like that are are still well and truly truly Catholic, which, broadly speaking... Is still the division of religion of, of the Christian religion within the European continent today. That's generally how you, you draw those lines up. But um, it, it is during the rule of, N, of Henry VIII uh, when Protestantism jumps over the English Channel and starts to really take uh, take a foothold uh, in England. Anyway, as a result of this, as I say, Anglicanism in in England. Kicking, kicking goals with both feet. But when Henry VIII dies in 1547, it's actually not a bad thing for English Protestantism at all. It continues to have a great time ruling the roost under Henry's nine-year-old son, Edward VI. But then, oh, what's this? Oh, bloody no. It's bloody Edward VI. He's gone ahead and died of, well... Actually, we're not sure. Could have been pneumonia, could have been kidney failure, septicemia, or just good old-fashioned poisoning by those nasty boy Catholics where we will probably never know. In any case, once Edward VI is dead, his half-sister, who happens to be a Catholic, takes the throne after some minor business, such as executions for light treason and the like. You may have heard of this lady lady is perhaps a bit of a stretch because her name is Mary the first better known as Bloody Mary and she was a nasty old lady I'll tell you that much she was a fervent Catholic unlike her father and her brother uh, and her husband was too another fervent Catholic at her side and uh, he happened to be Philip II of Spain so you've now got a uh, you know after the Reformation has taken hold in England you've now got a, uh, a furiously Catholic monarch on the uh, on, on on the throne, and she's married to perhaps the only monarch who is more furiously Catholic than her in Philip II. And then, almost any time in uh, essentially trying to undo all of the work that had been done before uh, Mary took the throne, all of the Reformation nonsense that her predecessor had been up to, and uh, Bloody Mary gets her nickname after burning burning almost three hundred Protestants at the stake. So. Really not mucking around when it comes to trying to stamp out, ban and punish people who are you know, practicing, practicing Protestantism. However, despite Philip and Mary doing a great job of, of, of stamping out uh, Protestants, they're not doing a very good job of sprogging out heirs. Uh, no matter how hard she and Philip went at it, she just couldn't get knocked up. And, and when she died in 1558, she doesn't have any kids, and as a result... Mary's heir is, here she is, get around her, bloody Elizabeth I, what a legend, episode 19, half-assed history, get amongst it. Elizabeth is Mary's half-sister. They're both Henry VIII's daughters, but unlike Mary, Elizabeth is a Protestant. This is great for two types of people in England. Number one, Protestants, and number two, people who didn't enjoy being set on fire. And uh, I'll let you know, there was a, a fair bit of overlap between the two. Uh, Elizabeth generally is much more relaxed than her sister. She's much more uh, tolerant of religious differences, and she doesn't go around putting Catholics to the fire and the sword, despite being a Protestant monarch, which is, you know, bloody good of her, I would say. But all the same, England is back to being a Protestant nation. And one person who doesn't like this at all is Philip II of Spain. He has lost his spot as husband of the Queen of England now, and he can't do anything to, uh, to undo the Reformation there anymore. He's no longer the you know the the, the consort of, of, of the Queen there, so he can't do anything uh, to continue to fight the fight of, of Catholicism uh, in, in Britannia. So he's also a bit pissed off about England. Uh, another side effect here of, of the Elizabethan, the beginning of the Elizabethan era, he's pissed off about the fact that England is getting nice and friendly with the Dutch, the Netherlands, which had been a Spanish possession, They were seceding and revolting against their Catholic overlords because they're all Protestants as well, and the English, of course, are 100% behind them in doing this. The Dutch and the English, they're having a great time at sea. They're pulling Philip's pants down and giving him a hiding with raids and privateers and the like, disrupting trade and just generally being a big old pain in Philip's arse. Now, Philip... He's not sitting on his hands doing nothing at this stage. He reckons he's still in with a chance to return England to Catholicism. And so he get be- gets behind one of our other mates here at half fast History, Mary, Queen of Scots. Get around her. Episode 19, once again, get amongst it. Have a listen. These two are uh, bloody loving it. Mary's a Catholic and uh, she has a decent enough claim to the English crown. So Philip starts to plot away at how he can get her bum onto the throne unfortunately for him and rather more unfortunately for Mary, I have to say, uh, she gets executed by Elizabeth in uh, in 1587, as you would know if you'd listened to episode 19. If you haven't done that, go back and, well, actually don't go back and listen to it now because you're already sort of into the halfway through this one and it'll be annoying on your podcast player because then like you'll have a you know 28% finished or whatever it is and then you'll have to come back. So just put it on the, you know, listen to all of them. They're all bloody great. They're all bloody fantastic except the, the War of the Oaken Bucket. That was, a, that was a bit of a dudsky. Anyway, philip uh is he's spitting chips he's spitting chips when mary gets her head chopped off and so he goes bugger this for a joke those english protestant muggles they're going to pay one way or the other it is time for an invasion mate i've had enough of this plotting all this other you know clandestine cloak and dagger nonsense just going to do some good old uh good old get some get some bloody bloody ships on the sea put some soldiers in them put some swords in their hands and just go and gut all the protestants until there aren't any left so philip he goes to the Pope, who's a bloke at this stage named Sixtus V, and who really should have been called Fivetus, but we'll let that one go. And he says, listen here, your holiness, those bloody English pricks, they are making a mockery of us Catholics, aren't they? And Sixtus goes, mate, I'll tell you what, they bloody well are. I've had it up to my back teeth with them, to be honest. I can't bloody stand those English bastards, mate. And Philip goes, all right then, big fella. Listen to this. How about a bloody crusade? Go in there, guns bla... Nope, not guns blazing. Swords bl Nope, okay, swords aren't blazing either. But wait, hang on. Do we have guns by now? Actually, you know, we do have guns, don't we? I don't know. Anyway, look, whatever, whatever it is, we'll have something blazing for sure. Let's just go and bloody get them, mate. We're going to have a great time. Six Sixtus goes, mate, I bloody love this idea. It is an absolute ripper. What's the plan? Philip says... I'll build up this massive navy, the Armada, I'll call it. How about that? Snappy title. I like it, the Armada. And I'll just pop over there later this year and I'll tear them to bits. I can pick up a load of blokes from the Netherlands, ship them over to the channel, and we are laughing. Easy game. And Sixtus goes, Phil, old son, you've done it again. I'm all about this plan, And I tell you what, not only will I let you collect crusade taxes to fund this, I will chuck a hefty bonus your way if you actually manage to pull it off. So, Philip... He goes home, back to Spain, grinning like a shot fox, can't wait to get stuck in, and he draws up his plans, good and proper. He reckons that they should mount a triple attack, a tricky diversionary attack up north near Scotland to draw the English fleet away, and then a full-on attack on Southampton that would then enable them to collect a massive standing army from the Netherlands. So, as I said, part of the Netherlands was seceding away from the Catholics, but there was still an area that was controlled by the Catholic uh, by the Spanish at this stage, and, uh, and that was where they would move this massive army across the English Channel, protected by the Spanish armada now unfortunately unfortunately well unfortunately for for philip i suppose the plan is not a very good one the duke of Parma, the bloke who was in charge of the troops in the in the netherlands he tells philip he doesn't like much like the idea but philip goes nah mate look she'll be right get around it we're gonna have a great time What's worse, the bloke who finally gets put in charge of the armada, the Duke of Medina Sidonia, has no naval experience. So not only have you got one of the big wigs, one of these knobs saying, mate, the plan's no good. The other knob who's in charge of the whole thing doesn't have any, he doesn't know the bow of the boat from from the stern. He wouldn't know how to swab a poop deck if his life bloody depended on it, mate. Despite this, Medina Sidonia, he looks at the plan and he says, mate, this is a bloody disaster. You know, we've got to tell Philip to pull his head out of his ass here. So he writes a letter to Philip, t- telling him the plan is all skew with. But the letter never gets to Philip. His bloody yes men, all of his entourage around him, they block it and they say that God will ensure the Armada's success. Well, as you'll find out, not the uh, well. You know, you sometimes on Twitter you see the the the, the thing that this tweet didn't age well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what we're looking at here. Anyway. It all starts going wrong for Spain uh, not long into the preparations in 1587. Uh, obviously, the English, they get whiff of what's going on in Spain. They understand there's going to be a, a, a sort of big mobilisation towards the English, and they're expecting some kind of invasion. So Elizabeth, she gets on the front foot, and she summons uh, Sir Francis Drake. So this bloke, he comes, he says, What's going on, Your Majesty? I heard you want to do have a chat with me. And she goes, Yep, uh, Frankie, mate, I've got a quest for you here. I got the, You see the old exclamation point hovering above my head? And I've got a quest for you, and it is called, and this is not a joke, Singeing the King of Spain's Beard. Drake was told to basically go and wreck Philip's business, raiding, burning, plundering, pillaging, and generally just making a big old mess of things for the Spanish king there. And Drake, he starts to get rid of this straight away. He gets his blokes together for a bit of mayhem. They can't wait. They're so, so ready to do this. You know, the Queen's just gone and told him to go and smash, smash, smash everything up, the Spanish, and they're loving the plan. So they get ready to go, and on the 12th of April in 1587, he sets sail with his squad. Now, it's at this stage that Elizabeth pulls a classic move, and a classic Elizabeth move here just after uh, he leaves. Just like her sort of fiddly farting around with the execution of Mary, as you would have heard in episode 19, she sends off a messenger to Drake to tell him that she's changed her minds and doesn't want him to go off on the quest after all. But she sends the message off too late, and he never makes it to Drake, which is exactly what Elizabeth wanted the whole time. She was just trying to cover her ass so that she could turn around later on and say, oh, look. Sorry, Phil, old mate. I told him not to go. I, you know, I really didn't want this to happen. I'm so sorry. But of course, she did. She just wanted plausible deniability, which she had after this messenger didn't make it. Anyway, all that aside, Drake scoots down to Spain to take care of business. And on the 29th of April, his fleet of ships arrive in Cadiz, where he knows Philip is preparing a massive bunch of ships as part of the Armada. Drake catches these blokes in Cadiz with their pants down and gets the cane out of the cupboard and gives them a damned good thrashing. Drake's fleet sunk either 27 or 37 ships. I don't know. I think it's quite funny that it was either 27 or 37, and I don't know why we don't know that. Maybe the bloke who was in charge of writing it down had very bad handwriting. But uh, on top of those ships, uh, Drake captured four more and then destroyed or captured tons and tons of provisions. He then goes off to ravage the southwest coast of Spain and what is today Portugal as well, sinking ships, attacking fortresses, and generally just doing a bang-up job of crippling the Spanish efforts to pull this Armada together. By the time he set sail for home, he and his mates have sunk or captured over a hundred Spanish ships and completely ruined the Spanish invasion plans. They've, you know, not not to mention the XP and the loot that they've got. You know, several legend by this stage I would imagine uh, but they are going home with big smiles in their face big round of applause when they go home Elizabeth's bloody loving it. they've done a great job I wasn't entirely accurate however when I said that they completely ruined the Spanish invasion plans. It, they didn't completely scupper them it's not entirely ra- accurate to say that he didn't ruin them all together and he knew this so despite coming home to rapturous applause you know big bloody parades key to the city big floats going down the street with marching bands and whatever else he comes back and he says to Elizabeth I've done a great I know I've done a great job of singeing the, the king of, uh, of Spain's beard. It is burned half off his face, and I know that I've, you know, I've, I've, I've knocked that one out of the park. But this didn't stop the invasion. This has only delayed it. So he writes this letter that makes it very clear that the Spanish aren't going to take this one sitting down. He he says, "Look, you you blokes, he's, you know, he's talking to Elizabeth, whoever else, you better get things bloody ship shape because these Spanish bastards, they're going to come for us hard after this. So let's put this Philip bloke in the ground for good here." Well. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, because what he actually wrote was, prepare in England strongly and mostly by sea. Stop him now and stop him forever. But I feel like I managed to capture the spirit of the message there a little better. Anyway, despite having Harvey's beard singed off his face, Philip, not in a literal sense, by the way, that wasn't, a, that was a mer- metaphorical singeing. I would really, although I guess I really would have enjoyed it if Elizabeth had charged Drake with actually burning, literally burning the beard off his face. That would have been, you know, that would have, talk about, a you know, op- optional objective for him to complete. Anyway, Despite having half his beard singed off his face, Philip, he's still ready, you know, to start feeding England England, the left and the right, so he he continues to piss money into his armada, and by 1588, he's ready to go. He gets old mate Sixtus, the Pope, to come over to Lisbon, which was part of Spain at the time, and on the 25th of April, uh, uh, Sixtus blesses the armada's banner. A month later, on the 28th of May, everything is ready to go. Philip revs up the engines, chucks the fleet into gear, and off they go. Well, I mean, Philip, actually didn't go cuz he had a bunch of kinging and whatever to do back in spain but you still you, you get what i mean the armada is off 130 ships 18000 soldiers 8000 sailors and 2500 guns this thing is enormous there are so so many ships such a projection of political power like the world had never seen their plan is to use the warships to protect a convoy of 30,000 troops that were waiting in the in the netherlands who would be transported for a land invasion of england on big barges while being protected by you know these 130 ships whatever else now elizabeth she's obviously got wind of this plan and she hasn't been resting on her laurels. And uh, she has mustered a sizable navy of her own. She's actually got 200 English ships that are hanging out in Plymouth. Now, England... Had a numerical advantage, to be sure. Obviously, two hundred is more than one hundred and thirty. However, their ships were, you know, not quite as impressive the Spanish as the Spanish ones. They were smaller. They didn't have as many guns. uh, They weren't particularly well supplied, as well. So it's not as simple as saying that England just had more ships and were therefore guaranteed victory. Was you know, it was quite a, it was, it was a fair bit different from that. But the thing is. The Spanish uh, sort of uh, campaign here gets off to a very bad start because some, sa- some bad weather on the way to England I mean that six or seven of the ships have to turn back in the Armada. They have to turn back before they've even arrived. So, you know, not the best way to, to kick things off already, losing a, you know 5% of your fleet heading home before the, before the battle's even begun. But sure enough, despite all this, on the 19th of July, the Armada is spotted off the coast of Cornwall from a place that is apparently called... The Lizard. I would like to say that this is a stupid name for a village, a village called The Lizard, but it actually pales in comparison to some of the absolute club bangers in other parts of England. Just just to give you a quick idea of what we're dealing with here, here are some actual real-life place names in England. Are you ready? <clears throat> Greedy Gut, Bishop Ooze, Bell End, Breast Sand, Knobs Crook, Loose Bottom. And, I promise you, this is not a joke, Moorcock in Lancashire. Anyway, the English, they've (laughs) spotted... Sorry, excuse me. Professional, here we go. The English have spotted the Armada off the coast of Cornwall and it is on. Here we go, fellas. Get up and about. Get ready because we are kicking things off. A series of beacon huts are used to let people in London know that it was all going to get started. And the English get into a huddle for a little council of war. Unfortunately, they're a bit buggered here because their fleet is trapped in Plymouth in Plymouth Harbour because of the incoming tide. The Spanish have more or less got them pinned. In fact, but uh, listen to this. Old mate Duke Medina Sidonia. He refuses to attack. He's got them strung up like Christmas turkeys. He's like shooting fishing about, like shooting turkey he's in a barrel, mate. And he decides not to do it as he was specifically told not to attack Plymouth. And so instead, he sails east towards the Isle of Wight. This is a huge chop-out for the English, who, as I say, they're a bit buggered otherwise, and so they sent out 55 ships to go and skirmish with the Spanish as they sailed east. Our mate Francis Drake is the rear admiral of this, of this sub-fleet, but his superior, Lord Howard of Effingham, obviously must have uh, you know had a lot going on in the brain box there, because he gives over most of the command to Drake, bloody legend, get around him, this bloke already a war hero here. And as a result, this detachment of English ships, they get upwind of the Spanish using their speed and put themselves in a very, very advantageous position using uh, a thing, and gaining an advantage uh, known as, it's called the weather gauge, right? So, English, the English ships, due to their size, they've got the superior speed, they've got the superior manoeuvrability, but the, this advantage weather gauge uh, was not a principle that was used all that often in naval warfare up to this point. And as we'll discuss a bit later, this series of engagements proves to be pretty bloody pivotal uh, sort of in, in the development of the history of the War of Sea. and the idea of weather gauge being up upwind to someone uh, uh, effectively is, is, is what it means there. Anyway, on the morning of the 21st of July, it all comes a gutser between the Spanish and the English, and they start bombarding each other like there is no tomorrow. The Spanish ships were much more effective at close range. They're designed to engage with a massive cannon blast followed immediately by boarding. And so the English, they used their speed and manoeuvrability to do the old bloody World of Warcraft hunter trick and just kited them. They stayed out of range of their big guns while peppering them with shots of their own, which was overall pretty ineffective. Uh, in terms of doing much damage to the Spanish ships, but it it completely neutered the plan that the Spaniards had to begin with. So overall, due to the distance between the fleets, neither do very much damage to each other. In fact, I like this because the worst damage is done when two Spanish ships collide with one another and were abandoned. So two more ships down for the Spaniards here. The armada is is, is slowly being chipped away. When these ships are abandoned by the Spanish, Drake sniffs an opportunity. He waits until dark, and then he extinguishes his ship's lights to go and loot these abandoned Spanish vessels. You'll remember I said that the English ships weren't particularly well supplied, and so if there are two, you know, top-class, bloody Spanish ships, warships, waiting there to be, uh, to be pillaged, Drake was all about that. This is a slight misstep for the English, unfortunately, for them, because the problem with this is that Drake had been leading the rest of the fleet with his ship's light, and so by morning, because he put his lights out, the fleet is all scattered and in disarray. And this gives the English... Oh, sorry, the Spanish, I should say. This gives the Spanish a bit of a head start on the quick English ships and, and puts them at a bit of a disadvantage, the English here. It takes them a full day for the uh, for them to regroup, the English to regroup, and start chasing the Spanish down, who are sailing as east as quick as they bloody can to meet these soldiers. But once again, the speed of the English fleet means that they capture, catch up before too long. And after they catch up, there are a few other boring scraps here and there which don't really have too much of an effect on anything. But ultimately what happens is this. The English aren't able to stop the Spanish from arriving in Calais, which is near Dunkirk. And Dunkirk is where they're expecting Duke Palmer and his enormous army to be waiting. So you'd think the Spanish have got themselves into a good spot here. They're ready to pick up this army. The English haven't been able to prevent them from landing where they wanted to land. However, twist ending, it is a bloody disaster for Spain in Dunkirk. Check this out. Number one. Disease has almost halved the size of Palmer's army. He's only got about 16,000 blokes left out of the original 30,000. And so he's having a terrible time. He doesn't even have the size of the army that he did before to load onto these ships. Number two, they're not even ready to go. They don't have equipment, provisions... Any of that sort of stuff. If they put them on the ship, it would be a disaster because they wouldn't have anything to fight with or eat. Right. Number three, they don't have a way to get them out onto the ships. I don't know. I guess it was just assumed they'd be prepared with with, with barges for transport, but nope. I don't know if they just thought they'd swim or what they were going to do. But in any case, no dice. The, the 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 soldiers have no way of actually getting across the channel. Number four, they the ships. They can't even get to Dunkirk in the first place. A Dutch fleet of thirty ships, right, small little ships, fly ships. There, they have blockaded the port. So if even the troops were ready. There'd be no way for the Spanish ships to actually pop in and get them without having to engage this Spanish, blo- this this Dutch blockade. The whole thing is a complete chamozzle for the Spanish, who, despite having the superior vessels, can't properly attack the Dutch fleet because of the size of their ships. Check this out. The ships, the, the Spanish ships are too big to get close enough to Dunkirk to attack the Dutch fleet. Their, their, their draft is too low in the water for them to effectively approach, approach the blockade. Now, I know this is a little bit of a, an abrupt uh, sort of ending for this story here. But this is actually game over. It's actually game over for the Spanish. They've been completely checkmated by this situation. Their plan to use unarmed barges to transport troops is a fatal weakness in their plan, and they have absolutely no way to protect these barges from both the Dutch and the English, who's smaller, quicker quote-unquote weaker vessels were able to operate without being threatened by the massive Spanish warships just because of the 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 sailing conditions the you know the the, the 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 shallower waters and and the general the you know the navigational requirements of the English Channel it means that these smaller ships are at a much bigger disadvantage these lumbering behemoth Spanish warships. The Spanish really, really stuffed this one up. They did such a bad job here. It doesn't even seem like they had thought about this sort of thing happening. They didn't have a contingency plan or, for it or anything. This is actually the end of the story. They were absolutely buggered. The English are bearing down from the west, right? The Spanish are trapped between... They can't attack the Dutch fleet that are, that are blockading the, the Dunkirk. And their soldiers aren't even ready to, 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 to get going, even if this would work. So, smelling blood. This English uh, fleet, that is, that is, again, as I say, coming in from the west side of the Channel, they start to stride down the wicket and swish the willow about like they, you know, like they, they are really ready to get stuck into the Spaniards here. In order to punish the tightly grouped Spanish ships outside Calais, the English sacrifice eight of their ships turning them into fire ships a fire ship as you might imagine is a ship that's been filled with pa- uh, gunpowder tar brimstone pitch and anything else that burns essentially that's then set alight and set on a crash course with the enemy so it'll bump into all of the ships set them on fire and then the whole thing is a disaster they weren't usually designed to blow up i mean though that some that sometimes was the case they were turned into i think what was called hell ships from memory um and oh, i mean this whole podcast is from memory it's not as i'm reading carefully prepared notes or anything like that no no no. this is orders coming straight off the top of the dome but fire ships generally weren't um weren't designed to explode they would just go in and, and set fire to other ships very dangerous thing to uh, to do but the english do it and they do a pretty good job as well and the spanish are so scared that these things might be hell burners hell burners that was it not hell ships hell burners um that they flee they flee away from the top speed they managed to to uh tow two of the uh fire ships away but the other six of them, they get the job done, I tell you what. Most of the Spanish fleet, they cut their anchor ropes and flee at top speed as they're worried that, you know, again, they're going to blow to smithereens and, and, and blow them all to hell. Um, and these Spanish ships break formation, sail downwind from the English, once again giving the English the weather gauge. The English then pressed the advantage and attack, and so began the enormously important Battle of Gravelin. Almost certainly wasn't the right way to say it. It's spelt Gravelines. I did look up a pronunciation guide. I've already forgotten how to say it. Gravelin. I'm going to go with Gravelin, and then at least I've paid lip service to the, the correct French pronunciation. Gravelin is a small port town in modern-day France, and it's there that medina Sodonia tries to regroup his fleet. The English, they close in, however, enjoying the tactical advantage of the weather gauge and having a deeper understanding of the Spanish strategy. I'm sure you know that in the later stages of of the of the age of sail as we move towards the 18th 19th century that britannia ruled the wave the british navy was the biggest and most powerful and most fearsome fleet on the seven seas and it all started here with this battle and i'm going to tell you why the tactical advantage enjoyed by the english in this fight with the spanish armada at the battle of at the battle of gravelon here i've already changed the way that i say that word was very much the precedent set for English naval history in the coming hundreds of years. Here's what the English knew about the Spanish about the Spanish strategy, and here's what they did to circumvent it. <clears throat> they knew that the Spanish ships were designed to hit extremely hard with their cannons, but only once. The idea was then to grapple and board these presumably damaged, damaged sh- ships and attack the presumably wounded crew. So that was what the Spanish were going to try to do. The English knew that because of this, The Spanish cannons weren't designed to be reloaded, which meant that the English would then try to make the Spanish waste their shots by kiting away from them as much as possible, having them waste these big cannon blasts, unable to reload their sitting ducks. The English also knew that in order to penetrate the thick hulls of the Spanish ships, they needed to be within around 90 metres of them before firing their own guns. And finally... The English knew that their greater manoeuvrability, plus being upwind with the weather gauge, gave them a much better scope to inflict damage on the Spanish ships, especially when the Spanish ships keeled in the wind and exposed the hull below the waterline, exactly where you want to hit with cannon fire. So basically, the English were firing all cylinders from a tactical perspective, and all of these strategic advantages ended up significantly outweighing the material advantage that the Spanish had in the battle. And as I say, it was this English naval superiority that only grew from this battle here. So, the English, they drop their battle plan, and they head in guns not blazing. That was the whole thing. They harry the Spanish fleet from a distance, baiting them into firing prematurely and waste their shots, and then would speed into closer quarters with their speed and manoeuvrability and just tear the Spanish ships to bits while they were unable to defend themselves with unloaded guns and still too far away to ram and board them. The English fired almost every piece of ammunition they had at the Spanish during this battle. Many ships ran out of gunpowder and cannonballs, and some ships even loaded stuff like chains into their cannons just to continue the onslaught, and it was a total Bloodbath. Five Spanish ships were sank or captured. Two more were damaged so badly that they floated off and ran aground, and dozens more were heavily, heavily damaged. The Spanish plan to tra- the Spanish plan to transport this army from the Netherlands had been completely and utterly defeated. And so this rubbish plan A of the Armada was soundly defeated, and the English finally now start to gain a permanent upper hand. They give chase in fleeing the Spanish ships, despite basically not having any ammunition or powder, they are still chasing them down to make absolutely sure that they weren't going to uh, the Spanish weren't going to be able to double back and transport transport the troops after all. Now, that's what's going on at sea. There's one interesting thing very quickly we have to cover off that was going off on land. It's not a very important point, but it's still an interesting one here because what happened interestingly on the English coast, they were still gearing up for this invasion. Uh, they were still getting ready for the Spaniards... to actually make landfall and uh, and actually, you know, try to try to fight them off. And in a town called Tilbury, the English had mustered a force of four thousand soldiers ready to fight off any invaders. And Elizabeth herself came and visited these troops apparently on a horse and apparently wearing full battle armour so it really would have been quite a, a sight to see she gave a rousing speech which is perhaps her most famous the Tilbury address which honestly is a little bit boring to read out but you know she's banging on about how glorious the english soldiers are and how you know wonderful the sailors are and how they're all be richly rewarded with uh, you know all this money and whatever else after that And uh, this is, you know, it's funny in a kind of sad way, it's quite tragic, because after this whole thing with the Spanish Armada, there's a typhus epidemic amongst the English fleet, and uh, thousands of them die, and on top of that, Elizabeth never gets around to paying any of them. So, a bit of a, you know, rubbish move there, at least, old mate, especially after all the hoo-ha with the speech. In any case, the Spanish Armada, they retreat northwards, up towards Scotland, being pursued the whole time by the English. They reach the Firth of Forth, which is near Edinburgh, and there Medina Sidonia realises that the only way for them to get home anymore now is by sailing all the way around the British Isles, north over Scotland and Ireland, and heading back out through the open ocean back towards Spain. The English fleet, they call off the pursuit at the beginning of August, and the Spanish continue north and west as best they can through September. The thing is... They weren't planning to be at sea for this long. They weren't supplied to be at sea for this long. So they're low on supplies. The soldiers are sick and exhausted, and their ships are absolutely buggered some ships were literally being held together with cables like a bat- badly wrapped birthday present they were falling apart they'd be so badly damaged in all these battles they were being tied together with bloody spit and string so bad was the damage from fighting with the english now nonetheless after rounding the north of scotland medina Sidonia, he decides to swing out west and sail home through the relative safety of the open ocean rather than skirting close to britannia now, unfortunately for him, yeah, oh, no, no, it doesn't, it doesn't get any better for the Spanish here. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately for him, uh, they don't realise that the Gulf Stream is pushing them back towards the east. So they're powering west, or they think they're powering west, but they're actually being pushed back and they're not making as much progress as they think they are. And with no reliable way to, to measure longitude, they chuck a left to head south way too soon. This means that they basically sail along the Irish coast, and thanks to some very strong westerly winds and some terrible storms, if you'll believe it, the Spanish lost even more ships. You'll remember that they all cut their anchor lines outside Calais to escape the fire ships. So when these westerly gales uh, keep driving them towards Ireland, a whole stack of ships are wrecked because they can't just weigh anchor and wait for the storm to blow over. They're just being blown towards the rocks here and so, so many of them are wrecked and scuppered there like that. So ultimately, after this Absolute dog's breakfast of an invasion attempt. Only 67 of the original ships make it back to Spain and fewer than 10,000 of the 25,000 or so men uh, make it back as well. And even then, most of the men who did make it back were in such poor condition. They were in such bad nick that, I mean, heaps more of them died. They died because of disease or, you know, just general maladies and, and, and sickness due to the cramped conditions, lack of supplies, and generally just getting totally pantsed by the English during this whole this whole affair. Poor old Philip was not bloody happy about this, as you might imagine, and apparently, once the, uh, once the armada arrived home, he said, I sent the armada against men, not against God's winds and waves, which in my view is not much of a post-match interview. Anyway. After this triumphant victory for the English, they remained vigilant and kept much of the fleet on duty, even after the Spanish Armada returned home. So there was much rejoicing, as you can imagine, but they didn't let their guard down. They didn't let slip. And the next year, Elizabeth attempted an armada of her own. She actually attempted to to pull together a fleet uh, called the Counter Armada, which is a very inventive title there. Well done, Liz. Uh, Which also proved to be pretty bloody disastrous as well. It involved over 23,000 men and 150 ships, but over 11,000 men died and about 40 ships were lost. So it wasn't a good day in the office for the old Royal Navy. And I would say, generally speaking, and I don't want to tell you around the world, wherever you're listening, I don't want to tell you how to run your business. I don't want to tell you what to do and how to live your life. However, I would give you the advice that if you are, if you happen to be a late 16th century monarch, don't go mixing yourself up with Armadas. They never really seemed to get the job done to be honest. In fact, listen to this. Spain later sent two more Armadas, both much smaller than the original, and they didn't and even they didn't have the slightest impact on anything. They both involved catastrophic losses for the Spanish, losing ships and men hand over fist, and Philip II, he just didn't know when to quit. He ended up bankrupting his country in uh, in in 1596. So uh, Overall, I stand by my highly actionable advice. If you're a late 16th century monarch, don't go mixing yourself up with armadas. It's not going to win well for you. Before we wrap up, there is one final thing to discuss here, the extremely important legacy of this whole affair. I talked a little bit before about the weather gauge and how it started to play a greater role in naval warfare from here on out. And I talked a little bit about the growing sense of English superiority and later on British superiority on the sea. And this is where it all began. Previous to the Battle of Gravelin, again, that's probably the fourth or different way I've said it today, the, cl- the classic strategy uh, for, 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 you know, fighting at sea had involved ramming and boarding more than a reliance on cannon. The English, however, they revolutionized naval warfare by pa- pioneering cannon-based attack from upwind, using the keel of opposing ships to expose the, the hull beneath the waterline, or even the rudder, which are very, very juicy targets for cannon fire, and in this way secure a quick and decisive advantage in the, in the course of a battle that you know it would hopefully not last for too long. In fact, the Battle of Bravalon is where England's, and again, later Britain's, utter dominance of the sea truly began. The revolutionary use of cannon and, and other technological advances, in addition, in addition to the superior tactics thought up by the English knobs, meant that England very much began its ascendancy as a great naval power in the 16th century while fighting off the Spanish. And additionally, their light, manoeuvrable ships outclassed even the massive guns of the Spanish warships, rendering boarding strategies obsolete and taking full advantage of England's various technological advancements. So ultimately, it was this advanced technology and these advanced tactics that beat off the the Spanish Armada, not in that way, get your mind out of the gutter, But they did a lot more than that as well. They did a lot more than beat off the Spanish. Again, I probably could have found a better way to phrase that. This whole affair was fundamental in establishing England as a sea power, which, as I'm sure you know, went on to define the history of the nation in the centuries to come and have an enormous influence on global history on the biggest scale. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Spanish Armada. Thanks so much once again to Tyler Berg, alert listener, who sent this one in, and apologies, Tyler, for the delay in uh, getting around to your topic. I do record these a long time in advance, which uh, has something to do with it. Also, just very lazy. That's the other reason as well there, so I'm not going to try to hide behind that one. Anyway, if you want to do the same thing as Tyler and submit a uh, an idea for an episode, uh, please do. gmail.com is the best way to do it, or... You can head to halfasshistory.net and use the contact form there. And it's there. You'll find old episodes, of course. All of them are there, as well as links to things like our Twitter page, Half History without a O, wouldn't fit, very annoying. And the Patreon, Patreon page, where my loyal patrons chuck me money every month. And I do very much appreciate that. So thank you so much to all of you uh, to, to all of you doing that. And if you want to sign up as a patron, there are no benefits at the moment, apart from the fact that, I mean, there are, be- there are definitely benefits for me. Great benefits for me. I bloody love it. But for you blokes, if you, I mean, if there's anything that I could do, please do get in touch if you're a patron because I'd love to show a little bit of support for the people who are, you know, doing so much to support me as well. In any case, that's enough of the, of the rubbish uh, housekeeping announcements for the end of the show. Thanks so much for sticking with me for another episode. And I'll see you back here next week for more Half hour History. Until then, until then, we have a question, as usual, posed on Reddit. Um, this question asked by Reddit historian I.B. Chuck. I.B. Chuck wants to know, What's the difference between the Spanish Armada and the Nissan Armada?